If you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it, that there are more selfish people than selfless people. Every day there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. This is the Strength From Service Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Strength from Service. We appreciate you joining us as always. My name is Jake Palmer, joined by uh, Mike McLaughlin, Jack Zimmerman. Jack, will you do the will you do the honors? Oh, of yeah, our absolutely. Fine I'm really excited to uh, uh, introduce this week's guest, uh, Tim Murray. Uh, just recently became uh, friends with Tim, but we uh, connected over a, a shared passion, I guess you could say. But um, fun story when we first met. Um, he says, uh, my daughter met you already. And I said, oh, who's your daughter? And uh, he says, Kate. And uh, I was like thinking about it for a second. And I was like, oh, wait, Kate got married. So I had to, got the, the last names mixed up. But when I uh, uh, got my purple heart pinned, uh, they said, who do you want to pin your purple heart? And uh, I asked for Governor Plenty at the time. And uh, for whatever reason, he wasn't able to make it down. And they said, but there's uh, for that date that it was set for. And they said, but what about this guy, John Creasel? And uh, they told me all about him, and I said, oh, even better. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. And uh, Kate uh, was working with John at the time, and uh, they both came down and was there for uh, getting my Purple Heart pinned. And, uh, um, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience uh, to have so many cool people there that have um, been around my whole, been uh, supporting me my whole life now since I've been wounded. But uh, we're here to talk about you, Tim, and uh, uh, for such a short time I, I've known you. I don't know a ton about you, but we're excited to learn about you and your story and, and um, what you're working on today. Well, thanks. The, um, the end of that story is I had sent Kate, my daughter, a picture of Jack and I, and I said, hey, I'm here at the Teed Up for the Troops, met a great guy, Jack Zimmerman, and the immediate response back in all caps is, <laughs> I know him. He's awesome. So I said, hey, my daughter says you're awesome, so don't mess it up. You know? right. yeah. <laughs> so far. You have a lot right. to live up to yeah, already. So, so There's far, just so right. much to live up to. Yeah. So um, so we want to talk about uh, Bravo Zulu House, of course. Uh, but let's start a, kind of a, with the beginning of, of what got you to start down this path of like, I'm going to I'm going to create this uh, Bravo Zulu house. And I, maybe we should start with a little bit about what it is, uh, Bravo Zulu and, and that and go from there. Sure. Well, Bravo Zulu house is we're declaring war on PTSD. Uh, most people know that there are a lot of veterans out there who struggle with PTSD. What most people don't know is that 90 percent of our veterans who struggle with PTSD abuse drugs and alcohol. And so. Our perspective is that lack of sobriety is a key driver of PTSD. And if you can't solve the sobriety piece, then it's really difficult to help these guys with their therapy or mental health issues. So we've created the really the first and only all military sober house in the country that's going to address what's called a dual diagnosis, MICD, which is mental illness, chemical dependency which is PTSD and chemical abuse or substance use disorder, as it's referred to in the VA. 
This and 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 this isn't uh, this isn't like something that you're just starting from scratch, right? You have a tr- uh, um, a history of being of these houses that have been successful as well. So it's not like you just came up with this idea that I'm gonna uh, get a house, put a bunch of veterans in it that have uh, PTSD and substance abuse issues, and we're gonna try to make this thing successful. You have a track history of doing this. Yeah, so people ask, well, how did you get here? And my answer is, 14 years ago, I met an amazing man, uh, Colonel Father Martin Fleming. Colonel Fleming was the uh, military general chaplain under, the Army general chaplain under Colin Powell. So all the chaplains in the U.S. Army reported to him. He reported Colin Powell. When he retired, he started what he called Bethany Village up in St. Paul, where he had roughly 20, 25 people living with him in community. And uh, one day at, uh, at my darkest hour, uh, I showed up on Father's doorstep, uh, broken, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, uh, struggling to stay sober myself. And Father took me in. And so if we were to use the Humpty Dumpty notion, uh, Father and all the Knights men put uh, me back together again. Yeah. When I was with Father, he liked to mix his military and his Catholic terms And so he sat me down one day and he said, uh, Tim, my transfer papers to purgatory are being processed (laughs) and I'd like you to join me on a mission to roll out a series of faith-based sober houses. And then he looked me right in the eye. What do you think? (laughs) And I tell people, if you think it's hard to say no to a priest, try saying one that's also a colonel. So that started me on this mission, and frankly, at first, I was a little skeptical because, uh, as I've mentioned to Jack and Mike, uh, that back when I used to be who I thought I was, I was a big deal, and if you didn't think so, just ask me. (laughs) So I thought the notion of running a nonprofit or helping other drunks was, uh, frankly, a bit beneath me. Apparently, Father and God had a different plan, so 13 years later, uh, we've now helped over 450 men about 20%, 20%, a little less than 100 of those men have been veterans. But most importantly, we have the highest post-treatment recovery rate in the nation at 71%. Huh. And that recovery rate is driven by really three things. First and foremost is that we provide men with dignified living. Father talked a lot about in both the Army and in the seminary, he learned that a dress right, feel right is a key component for the formation of men. And so if men don't have a really high quality place to live, what happens is that any attempts to build a foundation on top of that is really built on quickstand. So the first thing is, is that our homes are of high quality and it provides men with the dignity that they deserve. The second is in recovery. We talk about this notion of a higher power, but the reality is, is that none of us got to where we are without somebody helping us, whether it was the medics that helped you, whether it's the government that funds programs, there's always a power greater than myself that's involved in me trying to accomplish what I want to do. And I and everybody else has to deal with that and figure it out if you're going to stay sober. So we provide spiritual coaching to our men and we basically meet them right where they are. And then third is we have private rooms as really the only nonprofit sober house organization in the state. We provide sober housing for men based on what they need, not for us to make money. Right. So we provide sober housing, private bedrooms, beautiful homes, and spiritual coaching. 
Because their success is your priority. <laughs> right. Well, it, and not to sound glib, but that's a unique platform in a lot of cases, isn't it? With some of these programs and, and not, you know, not picking on recovery, but a lot of nonprofit programs, the number one plan is a, is a business model. And then number two is helping people. I think one of the things that absolutely surprised me was how long people actually will will plan on staying at a place like this. When when you told me the the numbers, which I, I believe you said some people stay a year and a half or, or at times, you know, and I was like, oh, I mean that's a that's a that's a huge commitment, you know. But um, for me, I was like, well, if you're going to be there for a year and a half, you need to have some space. You need to have a place where you know you can do your healing, you know. And if you had um, a guy in the same room as you that was snoring every night or stuff like that. It would really distract you from what you're trying to do there. Yeah, there's no question. You know, the um, the average length of stay in a typical sober house. So in St. Paul, there's roughly 75 sober homes in the state of Minnesota. There's about 200 uh, sober homes. And I would say that based on the data uh, that I've seen, the average length of stay is about six months. And uh, frankly, that's just not long enough. Uh, our average length of stay is 18 months and we have a small group of guys probably of our 41 beds so we have four buildings uh actually 50 beds total 41 in the twin cities and of those 41 beds uh 41 gentlemen we've probably got now eight or nine guys who've been with us for five years or more and partly it's because you know if you look at our homes on our website which is trinitysoberhomes.org If you look at those homes, these are beautiful old turn-of-the-century Victorian homes that we've purchased and we've renovated. And including myself, just about none of our men will ever either never have or never will live in a house this nice. And charging a modest amount, which is 850 bucks a month, you know, basically the two things it does, and you can appreciate this from a platoon standpoint, it keeps the bitching to like virtually zero. Right. Because... They look around and they go, well, I might not be perfect, but I sure as hell can't find a place this nice to live for 850 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And the second is, is that we're not in a hurry to move them out. And because our motive is not profit, turnover, which is where you make your money in the sober house business, we're the exact opposite. So we're all about how many guys go to sober tonight, hitting their pillow, sober, and how many of that can we do that day after day after day? Well, well that kind of leads me to my next question I had here is how hard is it, is it to get into a sober house for anybody? I mean, maybe not necess- just necessarily a veteran, but what constitutes you going into a, into a sober house and how hard is it to get into one? Yeah, so for some of your listeners, the term might not be familiar. So a sober house basically is a resi- typically it's a residential home where there's a like-minded goal where all the people that are living in there are there because typically they've gone to treatment for 30 days and they realized, like I did, I was 50 years old when I got sober and I thought, hey, I'll go to treatment 30 days, I'll be fixed. So here's a trick question. I know you're a sharp guy, Jack, but you ready for this one? Oh, come on. Come on. What is it? All right. So I got sober when I was 50 years old. How long do you think it took me to get to be 50 years old? Well, 50 years. Very good. See, he's pretty sharp, isn't he, Mike? on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't get nothing past me. Right. He is sharp. So think about it. If you are dominantly right or left-handed yeah. in your writing, and you've been writing that way for 50 years, and we switch hands on you, your first reaction is, this is really uncomfortable, I'm not very good at it, and you're fighting everything you can 
to switch that over to the other hand. It's funny that you say that because um, I say that one of the most difficult, frustrating, absolute hardest things I ever had to do was learn how to rewrite with my left hand after being wounded. I honestly say it all the time. I think that was the hardest, most frustrating because yeah. it's like, I know I can do this. I mean, I know how to drink in my head. I can do it, but I just can't get it down on paper. And you only had 21 years, not 52 <laughs> right. to unlearn half. that. Yeah. Half that. So that frustration that we can all relate to <clears throat> is the best analogy I can give to people who are not in recovery to say, that's what early recovery feels like. So sober housing provides an opportunity when I come out of treatment to say, you know, maybe I can go to a place where everybody's learning to write left-handed and everybody's feeling frustrated. So there may be some camaraderie and maybe just maybe they can help me and I can help them get better at writing left-handed. Well, and I, I would think that, I mean, that has overlap overlaps in a lot of areas in life to a, a shared struggle and a new pursuit. If you can get a group uh, around you and then you work, in that endeavor, you know, along, not necessarily together, but alongside others. It's kind of the basic training mentality. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you're going through your, uh, a life stressor while other people are going through life stressors and you kind of lean on each other. So that's a very uncomfortable yeah. time. You usually, for a lot of guys, it's the first time you've been separated from your family or everything, everybody that you know for an extended period of time. And yep. I mean, everything is brand new, but so, so you've been in a, so like you, you've been in treatment 30 days You're you, that now is when you're leaving treatment you're going to be looking for somewhere to live, right? Yeah. So to answer your question, it's, I would say, generally speaking, depending on which part of the state you live in, if you live in the Twin Cities or you've gone to treatment in the Twin Cities, you know, Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 treatment centers. So there's a significant number of people coming out of treatment every month just in the Twin Cities alone. And why, why is that? Why do we have <coughs> higher prevalence? Do you, do you know, because of uh, Hazleton? Is it, yeah. 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 So, the, so the model that was created out of both St. Mary's and out of Hazleton worldwide is known as the Minnesota model. Hmm. And basically, this uh, this notion of taking a holistic approach uh, to uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict's um, challenges, so physical, mental, spiritual, psychological, was really developed in the 60s, refined, and then just about everybody that I know of <laughs> that works at a treatment center or runs a treatment center is either a former Hazelden or St. Mary employee or a former client of St. Mary's or <laughs> Hazelden. So, uh, and, you know, why would you want to reinvent the wheel with what's best, basically the gold standard in the world, uh, which is now the Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic after they, uh, they merged. Mm -hmm. So in Minnesota, as in across the country, when people get to about their third week in treatment, there's usually somebody called an aftercare specialist that will sit down and they'll say, okay, Jack, you've been in here three weeks, you're leaving next week, you're going to go home and looking at your, um, you know, looking at your file, your home life looks like it's a little bit of a mess, somewhat of a goat rodeo. So have you thought about going somewhere else? Have you thought about a sober house? And oftentimes that conversation goes something like, well, you know, I don't know but maybe I should try because what I've been doing before hasn't worked. So oftentimes people will then at a treatment center, get a list and they'll get on the phone and they'll call around. A lot of it is determined by their budget. So you can find sober housing for as little as three to 400 a month, but you're going to basically expect to get what you pay for 
but people can still get sober in a homeless shelter. So maybe you're going to be two to four to a room. That tends to be a shorter term turn because a lot of guys don't like to sleep with, uh, right. you know, four guys in a room. But again, I know plenty of guys who even at 50, 60 years old said, look, all I can afford is three to 400 bucks a month. They went to a sober house. They slept with three other snoring guys, but they did what they needed to do every single day. And they got and stayed sober and then moved on. So it's good transition housing. The reason that we've created Bravo Zulu House is about a year and a half ago when we were taking a look at what are we going to do after COVID, we started asking questions about, well, gee, we've got this nation's leading sober house recovery rate. What do we do with that? Because as a nonprofit, it's not like a for-profit business where you've got quarterly income uh, targets and growth is, you know, it's grow or die. But I also felt like, you know, we've got something here that we really probably should be sharing with more. So we took a look at the different market segments and I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit it, but you know, Colonel father fart Martin Fleming saved my life, but it took me 10 years before I started thinking, you know, we really ought to take a look at this military segment. And I was shocked. I mean, absolutely shocked to find out the size and the number of men who are coming out of treatment every year that are veterans and the absolute, you know, we'll use a fancy word, paucity, the absolute dearth, the non-existence of all military sober housing. And there might be two or three somehow in some way, either in the state or nationally, that claim to be that. But the reality is none of them are A, nonprofit, and B, take a dual diagnosis approach that says, look, if we get if we get Jack sober, but he's still got PTSD, all Jack's going to do is come out of treatment, start graving sober, and he's going to end up in Mike's doorstep, basically unmedicated, going crazy. If we try to give Jack PTSD therapy without getting him sober, we're basically pouring water on a rock. I mean... How many people do you know that struggle with drugs and alcohol? If you were to say, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow a protocol. You know, they were like, uh, great. Do you have anything to drink? <laughs> right. That's going to be their question. So you got to get them sober first if you have a chance. So the challenge was I started asking around whether it was the VA or other related military nonprofits in Minnesota and said, well, where are your sobriety programs? This can't be this obvious. And without being you know, negative towards everybody else, what I found was the answer is we don't do that. <laughs> right. It's inpatient or intensive outpatient or nothing, essentially. Right. And there's not very many beds. I mean, there's 60 beds up at St. Cloud for the, was it RRTP, I yep. think is the program. And there's uh, some outpatient beds in Sioux Falls and in uh, Minneapolis. But just to give you an idea of the numbers, guys, last year, 3 million people in the U.S. went to treatment. Of those 3 million, 12% or 360,000 were veterans. And what do we, Mike, what do you think we are as a population? We're about 2% of the U.S. population. So, I mean, considering those numbers, that's horrendous, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's 360 veterans, the vast majority of which do not get their 
health insurance from the VA. And the reason we know that is because just about the only way that you can go to treatment at a facility in the U.S., there's about 15,000 treatment centers in the U.S., is you have to have health insurance. Well, the only way you can have health insurance is have a job. So most veterans, like my son, who's a, a major in the Army, he's got health insurance through a health insurance company. So guys like that went to treatment. Of the 360,000, this disease affects men to women about two to one. So figure 240,000 of the 360,000 were men, average age 43. So here's the number, you ready? 20,000 veteran men a month Hmm. are coming out of treatment and it's gonna be that way to the horizon. So 20,000 men a month are having this conversation on the third week of their treatment. And here's what I learned that I didn't know. So Jack, it turns out, isn't so agreeable. Because Jack, when asked, Jack, have you thought about going to a sober house? What I heard over and over and over again from veterans in recovery, veterans struggling, and aftercare providers who are trying to help veterans is the answer was anywhere between hell no and F hell no. I am not going to a sober house with some corporate weenie type like Tim Murray who got his feelings hurt in a damn staff meeting compared to I've been through. So forget it. I'm not doing it. And I'll listen. I'm three weeks sober. I feel much better. I'm much stronger. I'm eating better. I'm exercising. I got this. I'm going to go out and do this on our own, on my own. Yeah. Right? Yep. And you can't blame them, but the vast majority of people who try to journey this path alone, they either die quickly or die very slowly through a slow, alcoholic, drug-induced death. So it became very clear to me that says, well, since there's not very many of these in the country and the ones that are there are full, that would suggest to me that there's A, (laughs) a big demand, Demand, 20,000 a month, B, we ought to be able to find 13 or 14 guys so <laughs> to put in a house to help them. Yeah. So we're not trying to kid ourselves that we're going to fix this problem nationally, although this certainly could be a national model. So we purchased a farm in northern Martin County. It's a six-bedroom farmhouse, and this is a typical purchase for us. So we'll purchase a, a sometimes smaller house and then put an addition on. We did this up in... Uh, St. Paul, so this is almost a cookie cutter uh, similar. So we'll put on a nine bedroom uh, addition. We'll put a nice big great room. So we'll end up with basically 15, probably 14 bedrooms. We'll use one of the bedrooms to um, have like an ADA compliant um, uh, bathroom and bedrooms because we want to be able to handle guys in wheelchairs. Oh, yeah. So we're going to put an elevator in. We'll have larger bedrooms and bathrooms for maybe seven or eight of the 14 guys. But we'll end up with a 14-bedroom, private bedroom, beautiful farmhouse. We're also going to do what I like to call um, sneaky therapy. So in addition to being assigned a mental health counselor from uh, United Hospital and uh, a spiritual coach, which will come from some of the local surrounding uh, pastoral community, um, we also are going to assign a dog to each guy because... There's a lot of studies that show that if I have PTSD and I'm required 
compelled or guilted into having to take care of another live thing. (laughs) Guilted into. I love that. A dog. It's the Catholic part. Exactly. Correct. We use Catholic. I like to smear Catholic guilt over as many places as I can because you know why? It works. That's why. So they'll be assigned a dog, and there's a lot of compelling data, you know, the 80-plus percent zone that PTSD inside of a year gets down to a very manageable level because I have to get better because I start having to care about another living thing. Plus, I'm pretty sure that the dog's going to lick their faces a lot better than their therapist (laughs) or their their spiritual (laughs) coach is going to. I hope so. (laughs) So... That's the vision right now. You know, people can learn about that on our website at right. uh, Bravo Zulu House for the non-military listeners. Zulu is Z-U-L-U, Bravo Zulu House, all spelled out, dot O-R-G. And we got some pictures on there of, of the current as well as what the future will be. Oh, that's awesome. That's super cool. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's so important and it's so necessary and, uh, and it's going to give uh, our area such a... Uh, an amazing place for guys to go and heal, you know. Um, PTSD can be such a awful, crippling thing for some people, you know, and, and uh, I think all of us that have deployed and gone overseas uh, know somebody that was with us while we were on deployment or maybe themselves that have struggled with PTSD trem- tremendously after coming back from over there. And I think uh, after we've served uh, or we've been a part of uh, – the longest war in U.S. history and, and uh, much of it very violent. Um, we're going to have a lot of guys that are going to struggle after they came back from something like that, you know, and 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 the availability to drugs and alcohol now and, and trying to self-medicate and go to sleep at night or whatever it is, you know, these guys are abusing it. Um, you know, a place where they, can, they, they know they can go get treatment and then leave that treatment facility and continue on their journey in a healthy environment that's extremely supportive and and has them on the right track to become the best version of themselves every day. Yeah, I think the most important thing for people to understand is that um, we're really experts in uh, the sober house business, but I'm not a veteran. You know, my dad was a paratrooper out of Fort Campbell in the Korean War. My son is active 16 years and is a major. But I was a hippie in the 70s that made some bad choices, but now I'm getting a chance to pay it forward. So we really view ourselves as the experts, but we really view our veteran partners as the ones who are really going to push for, you know, local acceptance. Yeah. So I spent from pretty much March to June. uh, Mike McLaughlin was one of the first guys I met. And since then, you know, I mentioned I've met with 287 people from Winona over to Worthington. And I have to say that the two most receptive groups have been in Mankato and in Martin County and Fairmont in particular. So what I said to the guys in Fairmont in particular was I said, look, unless a local military organization wants to have a Bravo Zulu house, some guy who comes down from the city, and I don't care how much facial hair or plaid or camo or Carhartt that I wear, you know, I can just tell I get the... (laughs) You ain't from around here, are you, boy? Yeah. Right? And not being a veteran, I don't want to be accused of accidentally having stolen valor. So we're just trying to say, look, the veteran organizations and veterans like yourselves really have to get out in front of this. And that's exactly what's happened. You inviting me here, Mike uh, welcoming me in my first uh, series of meetings, 
referrals from Mike, referrals from you have resulted in a significant number of people. And now the American Legion and the VFW of uh, Fairmont are basically out in front on record and publicly uh, leading the charge. So we have a series of meetings coming up in uh, at the Fairmont Legion. I just spoke to the North Mankato uh, Legion. I'm going to be um, you know working with the Mankato Legion and uh, any of these other uh, wonderful veteran organizations to basically say, how can we partner with you? Because in order for us to pull this off, we got to raise some money. Yeah, sure. I got a, I got another good question. I think what happens when when somebody relapses, right? So they've been going this. We they, let's say they've been there four months. Things are going great, and whatever happens that day, they decide before they get back to the house that they're going to grab a bottle and start drinking. And and all of a sudden, you walk in the room and you can tell they're hammered. And what happens? Yeah, so it does happen. And anybody's in the recovery world, none of us are ever shocked. We may be disappointed or sad, but it's it's part of the journey. It certainly was for me. You know, I flopped around in the crop like uh, on the dock like a crappie for about 21 months until I got this. So it's not unusual. You know, I can't say what other non or excuse me, what other sober houses do, but I I can tell you that we do a couple of things that I know are different. Uh, the first thing we do with our guys is, um, unless they won't let us, we give them a hug. <laughs> and that's because there's a lot of shame and, um, and guilt that comes along with uh, drinking. Because you know you're not supposed to drink. You know you don't want to drink. But this thing, the reason it's a disease is because I can't not drink. At least I couldn't. Yeah. And so if guys are, for whatever reason, uh, not really sort of buying into all the things they need to do... Yeah. Then the risk of relapse is uh, higher, uh, but there's no guarantees. You know, today, I mean, you know, it's a little bit before, uh, you know, whatever time here it is now. And, you know, there's five hours probably left in the day for me. And who knows? I could still drink today. Probably won't. It's been 14 years. But any of us who are working what we call an effective program are humble enough to know that this thing, if I don't do what I need to do every single day, uh, there's a risk. Right. So when a guy relapses, the first thing we want to do is we say, look, we love you. Second is, you know, you need to go. And that's really never been an issue. I mean, there's we screen our guys pretty hard. I mean, we're looking for one of the definitions of God that we use is G.O.D. gift of desperation. So if we're interviewing Mike, we're listening for just a couple of things. And one of the things we're listening for that I said when I moved in with father is, he said, well, are you willing to, you know, to do certain things? And I said, look, you know, without being indelicate, I'm willing to crawl naked over hot glass or naked over broken glass on a hot tar road, you know, in the middle of summer, if that's what it's going to take for me to get in here. Because if I keep living in my car, it's just not going to be good. Did he tell you that's the answer? Uh, <laughs> he, he said, well, we, 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 we won't be using the broken glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he didn't leave, a, you know, he did also mention no nakedness. So, you know, that was important. That's just awkward. Yeah, that's just not right. <laughs> for everyone. Right, yeah. for everybody. Right. So first thing we do is we hug him. Second, we tell him we love him. Third is you got to go. And by go, do you mean? They got to leave. So like immediately they can't sleep over you know if it's 30 below we sort of get a little tough and go you know you might want to have thought of that before you drink but we don't kick them out 
So oftentimes what we'll do is because we're a nonprofit, we got a few extra bucks. If a guy doesn't have a place to go legitimately, we'll take him to a local hotel, put him up for a night and basically say, look, come back tomorrow when you're sober and you can get your stuff. If we like the guy, which is most of them, then they're welcome back within two weeks. And there's several small little what are called spin dry programs where a guy can go for two weeks to treatment and um, they can monitor his sobriety. And if we're confident that he's coming back sober, we'll take him back. Uh, You know, every once in a while, maybe 10 percent of our guys are, you know, are just guys. And maybe you had them in your units. You know, they're like spinners, right? They just spin everybody against each other. And we just don't want them in the house. And so, you know, shocker, a guy who's uh, maybe not the best guy in the world (laughs) to have in a team or in a group or in a house ends up relapsing. Yeah. So what we just say is, look, we just don't think you're a good fit for us. Uh, Let us help you find another location. Uh, The challenge is in the wintertime in particular, most sober houses are full, but we'll work to uh, do our best to find them another location. Yeah. Is it season? I mean, I mean, as bad as that sounds, is treatment seasonal? You know, it used to be, but with the wonderful thing now is with the Obamacare bill that uh, was passed, it took several years and COVID sort of interrupted the writing of the actual laws. But right now, if you've got a heartbeat and you've got a social security number, you can get treatment in the state of Minnesota and particularly in the Twin Cities, a $550 a month voucher for sober housing. Oh, wow. So we work with two programs up there. One's New Way and one's Elite, but this is not unusual to them. If they are aligned with and approved by these federal um, buckets of money, then you can get free treatment and basically subsidized sober housing. So there's a lot of sober houses that have restructured their pricing to, you know, $550 a month. But, you know, typically it's two to a room, maybe more. Sure. But... Think about it. You all of a sudden go from being, you know, struggling with chemical addiction to you just went to treatment for free and now you have housing for free. Yeah. So that's awesome. Takes a lot of pressure off. Yeah, big time. What's, uh, I mean, I know it's not going to be an exact number, but for like inpatient to 30-day programs, what's kind of the lead time that you're kind of seeing right now for averages? I know with uh, VA, it kind of fluctuates throughout the year and by demand, but I would say probably pretty average for the inpatient on campus is probably about a three-week wait from when somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, at least for now, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they go through their screen-out process. It's usually about that three-week mark where they get a bed for inpatient treatment. Are, are you kind of seeing that now with the whole uh, civilian side of treatment centers, or is it you can get into a place tomorrow? Because I think from a few vets I know that I've gone to uh, Hazleton, uh, it's pretty much been a you know, you call it a day and we'll, we'll have an interview intake for you tomorrow, more or less. Yep. So generally speaking, depending if you have insurance or not. So if you have insurance and depending on the level of insurance, most insurance will immediately approve either inpatient or outpatient treatment. And with the number of programs that are available, I think there's 83 programs just in the Twin Cities. So most of those have, you know, the, they, they have capacity. So you can get in. If you're looking for an in-person or excuse me, an inpatient experience where you go and you live on campus, let's say at Hazelden. Like a dormitory style. On right. Yep. Uh, that can be depending on your ability to pay, self-pay, or subsidized with insurance. Sure. So a lot of times it's affordability more than it is um, availability. Sure. But then that transition, kind of like you were saying before, on that aftercare coming out of treatment for sober housing, I mean, that's it's pretty readily available, at least depending on price and model and everything else, too. 
Outstate, I would say no. Okay. Twin Cities, yes. So one of the reasons we selected Southern Minnesota is when I started asking questions like, all right, uh, back when I was first talking with you, we were still trying to formulate our strategy, and I said to people like yourself, all right, so if you were going to design an all-military sober house, you know, first of all, where would you put it? And to my, somewhat to my surprise, even people in the cities, the overwhelming response was Southern Minnesota. And I said, well, that's interesting. Why? And they said, well, one, there's probably no stronger military support part of the state than this red band that runs across southern Minnesota. And second is everybody in rural Minnesota has got a chip on their shoulders because they feel like the cities get more than they do. So if you go down there, they might actually like you, Tim. Right? They might actually welcome you. Versus you're competing with, uh, you know, maybe some better looking and more talented people up here in the Twin Cities. So I so my response is so basically I'd be the tallest of the midgets. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We can help those cake eaters uh, when they come down here. Exactly. Exactly. We like to pick on you a little bit. But um, I I would say, though, that is that is very true, though, about this area. You know, southern Minnesota, the Mankato area, all that is our veteran community is absolutely so strong down here. And. you know, it just it just shows like when you show up to like Tito for the troops down here, the the people that turn out for things like that and, you know, our chili fest. And yeah. And I'd say even just the general population that even non-veterans are so supportive because you think of a lot of the chili fests and the the Tito for the troops and like soups for troops. Like that's all run by a lot of people without military service themselves, but are just super grateful and patriotic to, to serve those that well, serve. You were there when I flew home, Mike, for yeah. the first time, you know, at the airport. I mean, there's the amount of people that were out there just to welcome me home. You know, it just shows the, the type of community we live in. And I, I said it everywhere I went and everything I did, I said, if you have to have something really bad happen to you, you, you want to be from here, you yeah. know? And uh, I think that just overflows with the, with exactly what we're talking about today is those same people that showed up to support me and help me through what I went through are the same people that are going to step up and, and support anybody that has served this country that are going through something, you know? And, and you know, we, we've talked a, a decent amount about the, the mission and, and what we're trying to, what you're trying to do with Bravo Zulu, uh, too, here in Southern Minnesota, but on the, the strength from service side, I, I guess I just a little bit interested. I, obviously, you have that, that shared recovery experience and struggle from yourself that probably brings a lot of that passion with you, too. Uh, but generally, I mean, you're in the service business, service to others with that faith base. Um, it sounds, sounds like your dad was in the military, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, was faith and service a big thing growing up in your youth, or how did you kind of get that bug, or where do you think that comes from? So, yes, my dad was in the service and, uh, you know, he was a sergeant and, uh, you know, we were, you know, I'm, I'm 64, so I'm at the tail end of the baby boomers. So depending on who's listening there, a lot of this stuff is either going to sound like, you know, that's the right way to have been raised or it's going to sound horrific. But, you know, when you have a sergeant as a dad and we had, you know, four kids under the age of five and then my little brother came along as we call him the caboose 14 years later. Um, you know, you just, you just saluted, you know, I mean, there's just, I can't conceive of a scenario where a kid just disobeys their parent. Right. Sure. And so first of all, the notion of service is we all know it's the right thing to do, but we were raised in a way in which it was like, well, why wouldn't, I mean, doesn't everybody, 
right? I mean, if you if your family does things, we'd go to, I mean, every pancake breakfast, legion, church, you know, um, grew up in a relatively small town out in, um, in, uh, in north of White Bear Lake, Minnesota, Montemidae. And so everybody knew everybody. So when a family had a problem, it was all of a sudden we, people would come together. My dad and a bunch of other guys helped a, uh, what, who's now a professional golfer, you know, because his, his family was struggling. And they just did it. They didn't do it for the recognition. They didn't do it for because somebody told them to. So, so you kind of grew up around, uh, you know, a sense of shared community and, and struggle, at least. Like, we're kind of all in it together and just kind of absorbed that from the exposure, you'd say? Or? Yeah, although I would say that, like a lot of things, you know, I talked a good game in high school. But I think starting in about age 25 to 50, I would say I, I morphed into an extraordinarily selfish prick. <clears throat> Sounds like a lot of 20-year-olds. No offense. <laughs> so, you know, during that time... I experienced some success uh, in business, uh, some challenges in my personal life. And by the time I got to be 50, you know, I was a drunk. And even though on paper I looked successful, so part of my recovery that I've learned in the popular 12-step program uh, renewed or reconnected with or rekindled or uh, helped accelerate uh, this notion that the only way that I've got a shot at staying sober is I got to help somebody every day. Sure. And it can be as simple as um, if I if I keep my eyes open, there's somebody I can help about every 15 minutes, whether it's the proverbial open the door for somebody, the little old lady crossing the street. Um, if I listen really intently to just somebody saying, you know, how you doing, at least 50% of the people out there, something nasty is going on behind their eyes, right? They've got a dying loved one. They've got, uh, you know, personal issues. They just found out their kid's pregnant, their wife's cheating on them, their dog, you know, ate the, uh, you know, the family, uh, you know, whatever, right? And they, you know, somebody ran over their mailbox. I mean, there's always something going on. And I never stopped to bother to think about that because I was just really focused on myself, you know, the standard line that a lot of us in uh, recovery like to use is, you know, I'm not much, but I am all I like to think about. <laughs> so, so the, so the anecdote for selfishness is helping others. So in some ways you could say I'm selfishly motivated to help others because I know if I help others, it's going to increase the odds of me staying sober today. Second is you know, it just feels good. Sure. Right. And as a recovering alcoholic, we chased feelings. I mean, people, the only reason people use drugs and alcohol is to feel better. And wouldn't you know it? How clever is God? How's that for an ego? I'm complimenting God. <laughs> right. But how clever is God to design us that the greatest high that we get is helping another person, but nobody ever finds out that we helped them. Right, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, part of what we're trying to do here is, um, you know, stay out of the limelight. We want to have the veteran organizations. We want to have individuals like yourself take the credit because also we're just not going to raise the money if we try to say, look at what the great thing we're doing, right? No, that, absolutely. That, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, growing up, uh, 
like probably good parents, they planted some really good seeds. Uh, if you're a Bible guy, you know, I was the seeds that grew up in the uh, tangled weeds and then somebody had to weed the garden. Yeah, it looked a little mustardy. Yes. <laughs> See, I pay attention to church. Nice. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you earlier about that, if that was a biblical reference about building uh, your foundation, not on sand. Yes. You know, uh, <clears throat> on stone. So. Yeah. Um, I have a kind of off-the-wall question. Maybe this is uh, weird, but... What you're good for, Jake. Oh, that's why I'm here. Yeah. So I'm curious if when it comes to working with... Uh, if it, When it comes to working with veterans, uh, that does that present a unique set of challenges and, and circumstances? Because one thing I think of it is on two different sides of this, uh, the same coin. One would be, uh, I could see where with the military experience, uh, you know, the discipline, the training, the, the, the regiment, that maybe it would be... I don't want to say easier because that's a terrible word to use with treatment, but would it be easier for them to, to, to buy into a program and go, this is, these are the steps I have to do. But at the same time, that confidence and that, that ego that, that, uh, you know, that a vet might have because of their service, uh, does it make them also easier to relapse? Is that, is that something you see or am I overthinking that? No, I don't think you're overthinking it. Uh, I think the honest answer is ask me in two years. Okay. Uh, we haven't done this yet, so I can't tell. I can tell you that of the 90 guys that have been veterans, they have recovered at roughly the same rate as our non-veteran guys. So, the data would suggest that once a veteran understands that they're not special and unique, you know, I'm just not the special snowflake that I thought I was. <laughs> now, fortunately, my parents never raised us that way, but you know, a lot of people get told, "Oh, you're really special." Right. And the problem is, uh, I'm not. And so the minute I accepted the fact that I'm just a garden variety, average, run-of-the-mill drunk, and the good news with that is that there's a solution that has worked for millions of other people if I'm willing to follow that solution. So I suspect that the, you know, I, I don't like to speculate, but we're going to have to address the fact that we are not experts at getting in the mind of a... Uh, a, a veteran, there'll be a full-time, all of our houses of house managers, this house will be somewhat unique in that it'll be have a full-time vet, uh, a vet, you know, veteran that has an LADC background. So it's an expensive ad, but we think it's important because the one thing I don't want to deal with is the legitimate excuse that says, well, you guys don't understand me. Yeah, you don't know. Right? Yeah. You don't know. Now, Ask every doctor, lawyer, CPA, investment banker. They'll all tell you the same. You know, I'm really special and different. You don't understand what it's like. The pressures of being a, and then fill in the blank. So it's okay if they come into the house thinking they're special and different, which is why we're going to have them in an all-military sober house, right? So we're going to actually use that as a reason to get them in. And we don't care why you come. Just come. Sure. The odds are, if you check in with those guys five years later, if they're working a really good program, the first thing they'll do is they'll laugh and say, yeah, I kind of thought I was special and different because I was a veteran. <laughs> Joke was on me. Right. Turns out I was just a garden variety drunk or an alcoholic or a drug addict. But, wow, how cool was it to go through a shared experience with shared band of brothers to get sober, to find recovery, and then eventually launch back into the world. And I really, you know, that's what I hear from guys after 13 years of doing this at Trinity. I completely expect to hear that 
you know, from veterans as well. But we're going to make sure that all the support that they have, their mental health counselors are going to have experience in dealing with veterans with PTSD. So we're going to really try to eliminate as many of the legitimate excuses mm-hmm. that guys will have for, you know, not trying. Right. Sure. So kind of like um, the, the, the one of the standard phrases in recovery is that, uh, you know, it's a disease and diseases don't care. They don't, they don't pick and choose based right. on your, you know, your color, your ethnicity, or your, your professional or social standing. It is, it's a disease. So, Correct. Well, so we, kind of the same. I, I thought you might say that, but I, I had to ask. We've had a, I mean, it's obviously not the, the premise of the, the, the show, but we've had a, you know, decent amount of people that have been going through recovery, you know, two veterans specifically, Tony Dickmeyer and then, you know, Tom McLaughlin. And that was kind of a repeated theme as, uh, you know, had this, this outlook of, what an alcoholic was was just you know the wine with the red nose and the you know knapsack on his back until you get into treatment and the after recovery programs with AA and you realize it's you know business owners it's people in town it's the lawyers and doctors and it's not just you know the the down and out uh, transient you know tramp that's in recovery because it impacts addiction impacts everybody doesn't care how much your net worth is and what's in your pocketbook or uh, you know, what, what kind of medals or credentials you carry on your, your shoulders or on your chest, uh, too. <clears throat> but I think um, another common theme I, I picked out of those two uh, well uh, uh, as well was um, both of them came to the, the terms that, yeah, I'm, I'm an alcoholic first who happens to be a veteran, mm-hmm. you know, I, and that's right. that's what I need to work on, you know, not I, that... I remember Tom saying that specifically, yes. yes. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't I wasn't drinking because I went to Vietnam. I was a drunk who just happened to go to Vietnam, yeah, right. know, so and, same thing. Yeah. And, and not that the mental health part doesn't, you know, play as an accelerant, and again, not going through recovery myself, I, I can't, can't speak to it, but growing up around it and then growing up around Tony and, and, you know, being friends with him growing up too and watching him go through those struggles... You know, years down the road, when they came back to those initial moments in sobriety, uh, it was that humility to look at uh, yourself as not being special, to not being uh, something different than everybody else who's been powerless before this addiction, and really just turning and facing into uh, I'm an addict, and everything else can you know be dealt with after I deal with and face full fi- uh, full force into my addiction. So I I'd, I'd say you know on the on the military side of it. And from mine and Jack's professional experience, the people that we've seen, and, and granted, we're not a, a the court systems that we work around isn't a hundred percent requirement. Everybody goes to treatment, but it is a treatment court, and the the struggles with chemical dependency is real uh, with all the people that we've worked with through that, and the people that we've seen successful, Jack, and you can jump in on this, are the ones who have have come in there, I think, with that humility and got to a place where. I'm no better, no different, no more special, and this has got me just like it has everybody else. And those are the ones who've maintained and uh, thrived. It's incredible to see a person change in uh, a month and then six months and then a year, you know. And, you know, especially in the veterans court, you know, these guys come in and probably some of their worst days of their lives is when we first meet them. Um, And, uh, you know, usually the the treatment conversation comes up very early and – Usually it's something that most people aren't looking forward to doing, don't really want to do. The only reason they're going is because the guy in the black robe told them to go. And uh, they come back with all these tools and ideas and hopes and dreams and things they want to accomplish. And they go from a person standing at the podium going, yes, Your Honor, what do you want me to do? (laughs) You know, like, get me out of here 
to, hey, look, Your Honor, this, these are the things that I've achieved in the last week or two weeks since I've seen you. Uh, this is what I'm working on. Things are going great, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And uh, it's incredible to see these people that that are, are struggling at a time that can be rallied around people that have been through similar situations that want nothing more than to see them become successful, you know. And it's one of the only places I feel like in the world that we can go to that um, at the end of the day, people are truly pulling for each other. You know, nobody's ever trying to see anybody else fail in a recovery setting. No, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in the business world. You don't hear world, anybody yeah. be like, hey, watch me out sobriety, this guy. Right, yeah, you know, it's... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, it's like you go to the gym and everything is a competition there. You go to work yeah. and everything is a competition there. And everywhere in our lives, everything is a competition. But when it comes to sobriety, it's a place where we're all just trying to support each other, trying to encourage each other to be better. And in a veteran setting, it's we've all ex- went been through similar experiences, had certain struggles together, but... At the end of it all, we've all been through the same thing, so we all connect on a on a on a similar level, and we it's it's just a really cool thing, and it's something that's I'm super passionate about. I'm really excited that it's going to be here in our backyard. Yeah, percent. So with that said, I'm, I'm curious. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, make sure this makes the cut for all right. the radio. <clears throat> so at least ten, if not twenty percent, of the people who are listening to this right now are basically saying BS to a couple things we're saying. So I want to speak to those guys if I can. Sure. First is, is that if you're struggling, you're absolutely convinced that the stuff you're dealing with is, in fact, unique. You've got uh, a very complicated situation with your children, with your wife, with your parents. You've got medical conditions. You've got claims that are not being processed by the VA. You've got debt. You've got people who are hounding you to uh, you know, return things or to get move on to a different living location. And it's okay if you're convinced that you're special and different. Go check out whether it's AA, NA, go to somebody, whether it's in your uh, church or some organization that's going to help you with recovery, because what we're talking about is what happens when you're on the other side of the curtain. When you're on this side of the curtain, which is I'm struggling, I don't like who I am, I don't like how much I'm drinking or using drugs, but I can't not. And I got to the point where I couldn't drink and I could not drink. And here I am, 50 years old. I'm embarrassed. I've got adult children. And yet I couldn't not drink. And it was embarrassing. And if you would have tried to convince me that I'm just a common, ordinary variety drunk, I would have gone, no, do you not know who I am? Right? So it's okay to feel like that. And then, you know, just give yourself some time and then you'll realize that, you know, we, you'll have a good laugh with us. But we want you in the rooms of AA. We want you in the rooms of uh, recovery at church. We want you in the rooms wherever you can go to find some help. We want you in those rooms because there's help for you. And that, that, that's a big part of it, I think, is just, you know, they always say, you know, that first step is admitting you need the help or finding or going and looking for that help. Um, in the houses, I'm guessing that, you know, with the plan for the veteran house, you know, with Bravo Zulu and the other houses you have now, is there, what is that process of getting them ready to go back, you know, out in, into mm-hmm. the, the real world? I mean, because the, the recovery part is one thing, but then sometimes 
you know, I've, I've seen and heard of people that uh, live a lifestyle that is conducive to, you know, like uh, you're a rock star or you're, you're a radio star. Uh, maybe not those guys, but, <laughs> but you know, so now it's like, well, if I go back to that life, if I go back to that lifestyle, that's, you know, you, you can't go back to bartending, you know, right. it seems like a dangerous kind of an idea. So is there, is there an aspect to that that goes along with the house? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, but there's a couple of things uh, that you said might have some false premise. Like if I were to ask you, do you still beat your dog? You know, it's hard to say <laughs> yes or no, because there's a false premise in there. One, that you have mm-hmm. a dog and two, that you still beat it. So if I'm recovering well, I eventually get placed in a position of neutrality when it comes to drugs and alcohol. So I actually do know guys who are in the restaurant business and are bartenders who have 20, 30 years of sobriety, but they didn't go back to that six, 12 months after they got sober. So think of it as, you know, how long is it going to take for you to learn to write left-handed really well? As long as it takes for you to learn to write left-handed really well. Some people will do that faster than others. So one of the themes that we start hearing in treatment that we try to emphasize in uh, sober housing is new places and new faces, new places and new faces. So as human beings, we're habituated. And whether we like to admit it or not, we're creatures of routines, habits. And we know all these things are in our lexicon, but we don't realize they relate to sobriety and recovery, which is, you know, I'm more comfortable with the devil I know than the devil I don't. I mean, I'm supposedly a smart business guy, and yet for 21 months I had this solution right in front of me, but I was so afraid of what it was going to be like to stand up on and do that trust fall (laughs) that I was willing to hold on to a solution that maybe this time it'll be different, right, the definition of insanity, Mm -hmm. for the because of the absolute fear that I had that maybe this could be so much better, but I was too afraid. And for me and a lot of people, the current situation has to get so bad that the fear is less than the consequences I'm currently having. Some people are smarter. You know, we talk about those guys as they get up on the floor <laughs> while they still had, you know, uh, I got a case of the Yets early on. So a case of the Yets is when I first went to my first, um, you know, 12-step meeting is, you know, I looked around the room and I go, well, I'm not like these guys. I got a job and I got a house and I got a wife and I got kids and I got money and, you know, all that. And uh, and another way to say it is I haven't lost my house. I haven't lost my wife. I haven't lost. And then you finish every one of those sentences with yeah. yet, right? So I had a case of the Yets uh, until... 21 months later, I didn't have a house, didn't have a wife, didn't have a car, didn't have a job. And for me, unfortunately, and not unusual, I had to go through that before I was willing to take that surrender. When you hit bottom, stop digging. And some men, you don't have to hit a low bottom to stop. You know, it's like you can get off the floor. I mean, I know plenty of guys who had all those things, realized they have a problem, they went to a 12-step program, and they kept all those things, and they're doing great, right? They're the smart ones. I was one of the more stubborn ones, right? So new places and new faces. Now, typically, 
a man and his sponsor, not us, are going to determine what's best for them. You know, I don't even know what's best for me for the next two days. How would I know what's best for Mike or Jack? So if Mike and Jack are living with us, all we're asking them is, do you feel like you're ready to handle the, the life as it's going to come at you? We talk about life getting lifey. The best way to determine that is how well are you handling the controlled conflict inside this house? I mean, I've seen guys go nuts because somebody stole a piece of their, you know, their bologna because they count every one of the slices before they go to work and they come home and there was one less slice and they go nuts. Well, okay, that's probably not good that somebody stole your bologna, but do you think that's the worst that's going to happen to you when you leave here and you go out in life? So if you can't handle that, you might want to stay here. Father Fleming helped me understand this for me because after I was living with him a year, I said, hey, Father, I'm doing pretty well, kind of like living here. But, uh, you know, it's kind of tough bringing a woman back here when you're living with a priest. And, of course, he didn't miss a beat. He goes, tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, I said, you guys have given me good advice up to now. So I just want to know, should I re-up for another year? Or should I leave? And Father liked to talk in parables like somebody else does. And he said, uh, Tim, have you ever baked brownies? And I said, yes. And he said, what's your favorite method for determining whether brownies are done? And I said, well, you can push the bottom, you know, push the top and it'll spring back. But I like to put a toothpick in there and pull it out. And, you know, if there's something on there. Look at it. He says, yes, that's my favorite one also. And then he just shut up. And I was like... Okay, Father, time out. So we either went down some senility path, or you just gave me a parable I don't quite understand. So can you just help me out here? i got to get going. Uh, yes or no, should I stay another year, or am I ready to leave? Tim, there's still brownie on your toothpick. <laughs> so each man and their sponsor, and I'll tell you this, you know who the best people are to tell whether or not Mike or... <clears throat> Jake, uh, uh, Jack are ready to uh, leave. Ask the other 12 guys in the house. Now, most guys won't do that because they got a woman they want to get to. You know, something's going on, right? The, the honesty becomes too much. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But the best people to tell us whether or not we're ready is you go ask the 12 guys you're living with. They'll be the first ones to go, ah, dude. No. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of a lot of parallels with like the uh, military's leadership academies. I know uh, at like the the small unit leadership schools, uh, infantry squad leaders, platoon leaders course. At least the Marine Corps, I know on Rangers they do it too, where you have peer evals at the end of each uh, training evolution. You'll sit down with the other eleven guys in your squad, and you all rank each other from one to twelve, and you do it looking at the other people after you tell them why. And it helps you improve and helps you know where you stand, really, instead of this inflated ego vision you have yourself. And so, <laughs> what do you mean? What yeah. do you mean? I'm soldier of the quarter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, soldier of the quarter. Just ask myself. Yeah. <laughs> one person, one person poll, right? Yeah. Right. But yeah, so I think that's that's a, a cool parallel. I guess I'd never heard I, of before crossover. I really right. thought the I thought the parallel uh, the, uh, the the the. The analogy there, I thought, was that you don't know until you've been stabbed, like, you know, until you get out uh, there and are, are right. challenged, you know, until you really have to have to put yourself into that situation of, you know, someone just stuck a toothpick in me. And, you know, was that toothpick a missing piece of bologna or was it 
you know, uh, you know, not getting the raise or was it, uh, you know, there any number of challenges that you're going to run into in everyday life? And how are you going to react to that? You know? I took it as I'm starving now. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, this is a question that comes up a lot, uh, not only on the radio show, but just in, in general conversations, especially when we're talking with people like Pat McDermott and, and, and Scott Kutcher and such. I'm always curious what the effect is. And I think I know the answer, but I'm always curious what the effect of now with like legalized marijuana. Oh, yeah. Does that does that make these processes harder or is it the fact that the people that are addicts are finding the marijuana or the drugs they need anyway? It's not that big of a deal. Wow. Great question. So our general. So in the sober house business, think of us at the end of this assembly line. So how people get started, whether a drug is a gateway drug, whether or not it's, you know, booze is legal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the legal versus non-legal aspect of something, you know, prescription pills can be prescribed. So the abuse of something and then more importantly, the consequences in life. You know, a lot of times guys will call me up and and um, and ask me, hey, uh, you available to for a cup of coffee? So in early sobriety, I thought, do these guys want to date with me or something, right? <laughs> so I've, I've learned to stop being suspicious because I know exactly what's going to happen, which is they're going to go, so uh, you don't drink. What's that like, right? And, you know, somewhere behind those eyes is, you know, some horrific thing that just happened in the last three or four days that their wife said, you got a, you got a problem and you got to go figure it out. And so... It's not like alcohol and drugs are not the problem. I'm the problem. So THC, marijuana, chewables, edibles, heroin, you know, like, I don't know, but I'm the problem. Right. So when guys ask me if I'm out in a business setting or something, they go, you know, you want a drink? And I go, no, you know, I'm good. And if somebody is either sort of pushing a little bit, I use my version of humor to sort of push back and I go, you know, I would drink, but you know, let's see, it's uh, what it's uh, September 20th. You know, I got to be home by Christmas. So I think I'll pass. Right. <laughs> For sure. And if they don't quite get that, then the one that usually they get is, you know, maybe you can help me with this. I have this really weird allergy to alcohol. Do you know that every time I drink, I break out in handcuffs. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. Yeah. yeah, my my old man's line used well still is too is you don't have enough for me here. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. One is one is too many and 20 is not enough. Yeah. Right. So and that's I mean that's neither here nor there but it was a new term uh, I kind of learned uh well about a week ago and that was are, are you sober or are you California sober? Yeah. yeah. yeah so that's I, the new I, one now. I California never, sober. Never yeah. heard that before. Yeah, and I would say just uh, as a blanket statement, what what we're about at Sober Housing, and, and I would say most Sober House operators are, is this is ultimately your program. So if you think you're sober, um, consuming other mind-altering drugs, you know, it's not for me to say whether you're sober or not. The question I've been learned to ask is, Jack, how satisfied are you with the results you're getting in your life on a scale of one to ten? One being, you know what, um, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. And ten is, you know, my life is phenomenal. Like, I'm a ten right now, but I'm a greedy guy. I want twelve. Right. But if somebody's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I tell them, great 
keep doing what you're doing. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell you to do something different. But if you say one, two, or three, yeah. which is what most guys are saying when I talk to them, that guy who asked me out for a cup of coffee, inevitably I'm going to ask, hey, just out of curiosity, if you look at your marriage, your job, you know, just your life in general, how satisfied are you with the results you're getting in your life? You know, and they'll go, can I give a negative number? <laughs> right? So that's the real question. Mm-hmm. It isn't the legalization. It isn't the drug. It isn't the alcohol. Is okay, you're consuming this. All right. How satisfied are you with the results you're getting in your life overall? And if it's working, great. Keep doing it. It didn't work for me. That's all I can tell you. Right. Right. So I can just say, here's what I did. And if you want to come along with me, I'll show you what I did. But you can do whatever you want. I mean, sober housing saved my life. Colonel Father Fleming saved my life. And he gave me a purpose in life. My purpose in life is to help equip others with the tools they need in order to get and stay sober. That's my purpose. And we just so happen to be now partnering in the military space. But we've been doing this for 13 years and we're going to continue to do it. You know, I'll tell you one last story here is. So I was uh, 50 when I got sober at the end of my time with father, I was 52. He was 87. Now, those two numbers are important. um, 52 and 87. So when father said that part where, you know, he says my transfer papers to purgatory is he added on the end of it, he said, you know, Tim, I've been doing this for 35 years and I've been praying for the right guy to come along to hand the baton to. I think you're that guy. And he just let it hang there. And my first reaction was, well, I can't do that because I'll be, you know, oh, shit. That's, you know, that's. (laughs) And so he like headed me off right at the pass. So what I tell people is, look, you know, the the highest compensated person in our organization makes a thousand dollars a month, twelve grand a year. So, you know, do your math from there. Second is is that I have a purpose in life. I have a focus. I have a mission. And what I know I can relate to in, with my <clears throat> veteran brothers here is when you have a purpose and when you have a clear mission, it's a wonderful thing. And the veterans I've talked to, what they struggle with when they come back here is they don't have that clarity. They don't have a clear purpose. They don't have a clear mission. They don't have the camaraderie of the guys that are around them. And drugs and alcohol take then a bigger and bigger part of their life. And all we're trying to do is help re-energize them with a new purpose, being surrounded by a band of brothers that are going to support them in that journey. Okay, and I would agree 100% with that. And I would I would think transition from the military or just get out of high school, college, and, and finding a career, raising a family, or, or sobriety, the, the people that, that struggle are the ones that um, don't find a, a pursuit that's passionate for them. And I think the most common thread on whatever that pursuit, uh, pursuit is, is service to others is so fulfilling, no matter what your lot in life is or what your initial intent was. But the more you put out uh, and the more you give back, the more you, you take in just through that experience and through that exposure. And it's it's life altering for those that uh, are are battling addiction or those who are, are you know dealing with transition. But it's also life altering for people who never get to that point, but sustain and, and have uh, you know a purposeful, uh, passionate life too. So, oh man, thanks thanks for sharing yeah. all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, really. Um, Jake, yeah, I was going to say um, 
those uh, before we always like to wrap up the podcast with a couple questions that are of the same question every time. But before I do that, I got to ask. So when you leave here today, will your number be uh, two ninety? Since you said you've interviewed 287 no, people. No, it'll actually be 288. <laughs> oh, 288. Okay. Counted you guys counted they're, already. They're all right. already in there. I just wanted to know if we were making the cut or not. Yeah, no, you are. <laughs> it's all about He's me. In. It's yeah, me yeah, and my yeah. ego. You're in. Me and my ego. You are special. Yeah, though. you are special. I'm, I'm half you're, special. You're more like blue helmet special, but you're <laughs> special. Yeah, well, that's what mom says. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so... Uh, Kind of some fun questions to wrap it up. Uh, first and foremost, a little in-depth, but or a little deeper maybe. Uh, if you could go back in time and you could talk to young Tim and give him uh, and, and tell him anything, give him one piece of advice, what would that be? Uh, you are good, but you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very humbling for sure. If you had to do it all over again, same way, would you? No, not, not one bit. No? Because I wouldn't be right here. Those experiences, I've been perfectly prepared to do exactly what I've been doing, and there's not been one mistake that's been made along the way. It was perfectly designed to get me right here, and I love what I'm doing right now. That's that's a, that's a solid answer. Uh, final question: favorite barbecue food? Ribs. There we go. Uh, ribs is uh, ribs. Uh, ribs always the Made Jack so. happy. Uh, yes, I love that's ribs. What, yeah, ribs are the best. So, uh, Tim Murray, thank you so much for taking some time and uh, spending with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing what uh, Bravo Zulu House looks like, and uh, hopefully, it's the first of many. So, uh, thank you also for joining us uh, here on Strength from Service. Remember, you can download us wherever you get your podcast, as well as ktoe.com. This is the Strength from Service podcast. 